And, um, you know, we've been talking about Christmas. It's been an incredible Christmas season, hasn't it? It's been uh, amazing. I, a little warmer yesterday than I wanted. I heard about pool parties. I don't know if you had one of those, but um, that's not how it was in upstate New York where I'm from. But um, I want to introduce myself to you. This is technically my first sermon at Restoration. Lucky for you, it's not my first sermon ever. That audience was really nice when they were like, oh, that was a really good word. I was like, it really wasn't. But hopefully I do better today. But um, grateful that you guys are here. Uh, my name is Gavin. If you've never met me, uh, I'm the newest pastor. Well, I don't know if the newest pastor. I somewhat. I started in July, basically. Um, but there's five of us and our family are kind of sitting right down here. My wife, Andrea, we've been married 22 years my oldest daughter, Avery's at Baylor, and my son, uh, Samuel, he's 16, just got a car yesterday. What? You know? Which, by the way, do not shop for used cars right now. Totally hard thing to do. But, um, and my youngest daughter, Julia, who is 11. So um, hope you guys get to meet us. Uh, what do I do here? I'm the group's pastor. So as the group's pastor, I oversee life groups, uh, marriage ministry, recovery ministry, and one of the things I think is the greatest privilege is getting to do some counseling uh, uh, with people of the church so far. And I've done actually a decent amount. So it's weird because some of you guys I've never met, and some of you I already know better than most of the people in your lives. So that's kind of how that works. That's just how the counseling gig works. So, um, but I just count that as a privilege. Um, we, our family, uh, has come over in July, like I said, and it's been, you know, kind of transitioning. Wood Forest is a little bit of a unique place. I don't know if you know that. Like, uh, there's only three restaurants. Like, that's strange. One of them is pizza and one of them is sushi. Those two things don't go together. And the third is, it's really not a restaurant. It's a grocery store. I have to tell you that. That's not, doesn't count. But I do hear the taco bar is coming. So, I think it's open. Is it open? Anybody been there yet? Taco bar? Okay. How is it? Good rating? Two, three stars? All right. Fair enough. And there's a grill coming as well. I think I saw a sign across the street from the pizza place. So that's five restaurants. But when I started coming here, I realized there's this whole other world to the north, guys. If you've never met up there, 105, lots of restaurants. You should check it out. I think there's even an El Bosque up there, so check that out. Spicy chicken sandwich, Popeye's, Louisiana fast. You'll enjoy it. So, um, yeah, we're starting to kind of get the hang of the, the neighborhood, so to speak, um, and really enjoying lots of things about the church. Uh, Christmas has just been wonderful for us this season of being here. I, and I don't know if you guys were at the 3 o'clock Christmas Eve service yesterday, but it was wild. I've never seen tailgating at a church service. They literally had lined up the pickup trucks and were sitting in the tailgates of the trucks. And I, I'd never seen that before. It was pretty, um, pretty incredible. I never wanted to have a pickup truck more in my life than right in that moment. <laughs> and it was pretty amazing. And so uh, that was different. Uh, Angels, apparently you call them big honking angels up here. So I, I've been hearing that a lot from the different messages and sermons. And so that's new for us. Um, but I'll tell you something that was special. Uh, if you, it, what didn't happen at the 3 o'clock service because there were just so many folks here, which was incredible to see. Um, it happened in all the other services uh, kind of as a Christmas Eve tradition. We weren't able to do it because of so many people at the 3 o'clock. But to go out in the lobby and sit around the piano singing Silent Night, if you got to be at one of the services, has got to do that. That was special. Uh, I think that was special for our family because I think it said family. And uh, I think my family, for the first time, I know my wife kind of just had tears down her eyes because she just like, 
felt like family in that moment. Um, and it just, it just was a nice way that God said to us, welcome uh, to this church. And so, uh, yeah, it's a new world for us. We're excited to be here. And it's been taking kind of me back um, to the earliest days. Uh, I've been in ministry now over 20 years. But my earliest start, I got started in a ministry called Young Life. And it's actually one of your outside-the-walls partners out there, Young Life in the North County area. And that's where I kind of got my start. And uh, Young Life, if you don't know, it's a ministry to uh, high school students. And their goal is to kind of reach the furthest out high school student. They're like, we are not going to set up a church because we want to reach the people that wouldn't come to church, the high school students that wouldn't even show up. And it was wild. The first time I went to a Young Life camp, they had a smoker's pit, literally, for the kids that wanted to smoke. They gave a spot for them to do so because they're trying to accept every kid right where they were at. And the goal was, most people usually graduate high school and go into college. Well, my wife and I were both in college, and weirdly, we're, we're going back into the high schools. Because that's what the Young Life leaders told us. They said, your job is to go onto their turf, go to their games, be in their world, connect with them in what they do. And it was a blast. We did things we would never even imagine we would be doing. Things that only high school kids would do and think are fun. Right? We'd be driving around with a giant couch inside one of our cars, and it was a scavenger hunt. You had to take pictures in different places in the couch, like the freezer section in the grocery store. And it's fantastic. You have like 10 of you sitting around in the freezer section, take the picture, the manager comes out and yells at you, and you run away with the couch. And then you go to the next spot, and you do the next thing. I remember staying up late at night, 11 p.m., 12 p.m., with a bunch of high school guys, and they're like, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we just muted the show and like did the voices for them? I was like, I, if that's your idea of fun, all right. And then we did it. And then everybody started taking a different character, and we made the television show our own, you know. It might have gotten a little inappropriate, but that's when I had to step up as the Young Life leader, right? But just kind of crazy, weird things, things you do in high school, things that don't make sense. Cause and effect is really fun, you know. <laughs> and we would do those kind of stuff. But I asked one time a Young Life leader, and I said, why do you do this? What is this all about? He said, well, it's incarnational ministry. I was pretty young in my faith at that time, and I was like, well, what, what, does that, what does that mean? He says, well, it means we enter their world. I, I don't understand. He goes, that's what Jesus did. That's what Christmas is about. And we do what he did. And since it is the day after Christmas, I thought we'd talk a little bit about that. The meaning, of that, the meaning of what all of the season has been, the meaning of what Jesus did on our behalf. But I want to transition that, and you'll get to, we'll get to that toward the end of the message. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it up, we're going to be in Hebrews 2. I'm going to go ahead and read through the entire passage and go back one way through it. But I want you to know that the book of Hebrews, uh, we all call them books in the New Testament, but most of the books of the New Testament are actually letters. And this one's not a letter. The book of Hebrews is actually should be probably called the Sermon of Hebrews. It describes itself as a word of exhortation. And the book of Hebrews is probably one of the most ancient, one of the earliest sermons that we have that probably was given in, in a church setting. And it originally was attributed to the Apostle Paul, but a lot of people don't think that Paul necessarily wrote it. In fact, the early, one of the early church fathers said, who wrote Hebrews? God only knows, Right? But it was somebody close to Paul, most likely. I like to think it was Apollos or Barnabas. That's my theory. But there's a lot of theories out there. 
But what the book of Hebrews does is gives us incredible truth of what the earliest community was thinking about what Jesus had done. And we get some of the most amazing Christmas interpretations that we could have. So take a look at Hebrews 2. We'll read it through and then we'll go back through. Verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, it's Abraham's descendants. And for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are also being tempted. Now, when you look at a passage like this, there's a lot of incredible words and, and, and just explanation uh, because it's not just so simple as a baby in a manger. Um, there was a lot going on on that Christmas morning. And the book of Hebrews wants to tell you the plan behind the plan. All right? What was this all about? Why did Jesus have to become a person? Why did he have to become a baby? What is this whole thing about? And the book of Hebrews says this is part of a plan about bringing sons and daughters to glory. And so this was fitting that Jesus would do it this way. That word fitting means like necessary, means appropriate, means that this is the way to it needed to be done, that Jesus had to become a person, had to be made like you and us. And it makes sense logically, as one theologian said named Anselm back in the day, he said, look, man is the one with the problem. It's man's sin, it's man's debt, so man should have to pay for it. So it makes sense that if God wants to go on a savior plan, then he's got to become a man to pay man's debt to rescue man because it's our debt. And so the logic goes. And it makes a whole lot of sense because the payment that he would make would be his death and his suffering. Well, he's got to be human to do that. He's got to be vulnerable to do that. And that says it's fitting then that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. That in some sense, Jesus becoming into the manger as a person, as a human, was necessary so that he could suffer and die and experience some of the same pain that you and I do. I mean, pain is part of our story, right? It's part of the human condition, yes? You've had some pain? It's happened to you? You have some of it? Well, Jesus wasn't going to stand back and say, well, that's your pain, and I'll just take care of it, and I'll save you anyway. He jumped in the middle of our story. He came down, and it says a very cool word in the passage. says that he became the pioneer of our salvation. 
I love that word, the pioneer of our salvation. It's a really cool Greek word, archegos, and I like saying it because it just sounds cool, archegos. It means nothing to me because it's in a different language, but what it is is it means pioneer, salva- uh, uh, trailblazer. Some translations will have author. Some translations will even have champion. In fact, it was actually used of Hercules in ancient Greece, that he was the champion, almost like a demigod, right? Became one of us, but different. Because you have now God in flesh, right? And so he comes down to blaze a trail. He doesn't stand afar off, but he gets in the middle of our family, in the middle of our situation, in the middle of our humanity and our pain and our story, and even our suffering and death. And he blazes a trail ahead of us to show us the way that it could be done, to show us the way out of this situation, out of this life, out of this world. And he says, what is the goal of all this? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he become this person? Well, it's all the way back in verse 10, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The goal of this plan was you. You, as you sit here this morning, Jesus in the manger had you in mind to bring many sons and daughters. You could be those sons and daughters. Maybe you currently are those sons and daughters. He came for you. Now, through this whole Christmas season, you've heard Josh and Greg preaching about how Jesus came to the unlikely, the unlikely You know, whether it was way back when, when we started talking about the Christmas narrative and Jesus had, uh, well, God had appeared to old Elizabeth, right? And old Zachariah, where they just say it old, right? And Greg hammered how old they were, didn't he? He just kept it. But he said, didn't he? He, he, he? he said, if you're not dead, then God's not done, right? You remember him saying that? And then we talked about Simeon. He was an older guy in his life, but God used him. Unlikely shepherds, unlikely teen moms, crisis pregnancy, unlikely. But this passage says that God has appeared to you. And that this morning, I want you to assume you are the unlikely. He appeared to you to communicate to you, to draw you in to the story, to bring you along. And so you may sit there and you look outside the manger scenes and you're like, well, I'm not Mary. I'm not Joseph. I I wish I was a shepherd. That would have been cool, but I'm not. He says, no, he appeared to you. That's the whole point. It was fitting for him to do so, to show up as a baby, to become one of humanity, to enter into our world. You are the unlikely, and God is trying to appear in your life, into your family. That's a big idea. And honestly, I don't know if you are like me, but it's an uncomfortable idea. It's uncomfortable for me because I I don't know if I can receive that. I struggle sometimes to receive that. There's a distance in me that receives that. I'm always on the outside of the manger looking in. I'm never in the manger scene. And I think that why that is, that maybe is why you disqualify yourself from it, and perhaps that there's a part of you that keeps God at a distance, is because of the things you've done, or maybe even the things that have been done to you. For me and my story, I think about the most painful time of my life. 
Um, it's probably around my parents' divorce. I was in fifth grade at the time. I say that I was old enough to understand what was going on, but not old enough to emotionally deal with it in any kind of healthy way. Right? And my parents' story is there's, one, there's a story of adultery in there. There's a story of broken into two houses, being shuttled kind of back and forth. Um, I hated playing the mediator. I needed their counsel, but I couldn't get their counsel because the counsel that I needed was for what was going on between them. And the only people I had at that time in my life to turn to were my parents, and they weren't available. And it was really hard and confusing, and I remember how angry I was. And in those moments, I was so mad, especially at the particular parent who had the adultery. I was so mad that I called them some awful names that only a teenager could probably say when they're so upset. Said things to my parents that I regret. Man, the passage is saying that Jesus entered my family. Really? With that family? What What do you want him? What do you want to be a part of that? What do you want to be a part of me? Because I just remember those days of being so isolated, just feeling isolated by what I was going through, but then the isolation of a bunch of other people who didn't know what to do with me. And so I think at that time in my life, I don't know if that's where it started, I don't know if that's how it became, but I kept people at a distance, I kept my parents at a distance, and I think I kept God at a distance. I disqualified myself. My story couldn't be united to his story. It was too messy. It was too dangerous. It was too not Jesus-like. So I'm not sure if he wants in my family. But literally, the text says that he came into our family. He, In fact, he wanted to get involved. In fact, he wanted to appear to me. He wanted to become one of us. And he joined, it says, he joined our family, literally. Both those who make people the... Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed to be in my family. He jumped right in the middle of my messed up family and he has done it to you as well. So I don't know what your story is today, what rough spots there are, what things that you think are not Jesus-like. But Jesus, when he became a baby, it was in that manger. He said, we're family now. We're family now. He doesn't change things from the outside looking in. He actually jumps in on the inside with you into the middle of whatever it is you're going through and walks with you and walks ahead of you. He was like us in every way, yet without sin, it will say later in Hebrews. So he understands every moment of the temptation. He understands every moment of the hard, and he jumps in the middle of the pit with us, and he goes to the end, and he pursues us no matter how far we try to move away from him and how far we think our story disqualifies. He just keeps pursuing and goes, don't you know I'm in your family? I'm your brother. I'm your sister. I came for you. I came because you have that story. And I came to redeem your family. And I want to lead you out. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe part of it is you disqualify yourself. But maybe part of it is you disqualify Jesus from that level of closeness. 
because that level of closeness might actually entail relationship, and that's dangerous for some of us who have been hurt, right? So maybe you think Jesus' experience wasn't kind of fully human, right? That's how some have gone in the history of the church. You know, they paint pictures and artists with, with Jesus and the big kind of bright halo behind him, and that he's somehow different, as if he walked around like that, glowing and things like that. But that's not how it worked, right? It's not like the show Survivor, right? What season are they on, anybody? Like 100, <laughs> right? It feels like it. I looked it up. Hey, uh, who wants to admit it? Let's just do confession real quick. Who still watches Survivor? It's okay. <gasps> Nobody? Seriously? Or are you just not willing to admit it? 41 seasons, though. 41 seasons of Survivor at this point. It started in 2000. I don't even know how they fit that many seasons in, but 41 seasons of Survivor. And here's the one thing I've learned after 41 seasons of Survivor, which I don't watch the show, and if you need other recommendations, there are way better shows. But after 41 seasons, you know what I found out? Those people aren't really surviving. That was the early part of the show. When you watch the show back in the first couple episodes, they had to build shelters, and they were fishing and things like that, and that was a big part of the show. But let's be honest. Reality television isn't exactly reality, right? Because the bottom line is, I don't know about you, but being stranded on an island, I never had a camera crew with me, right? That's not how it works. Tom Hanks, none of them went that crazy and started talking to a volleyball. It wasn't that bad, right? They weren't cast away, right? Like, so surviving isn't, they were surviving the competitions and the games. And, and if they won the game, they got a full course meal. That is not being stranded on an island. And sometimes we think, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> sometimes we think, that maybe that's how Jesus did it, pseudo-reality, that he showed up with a camera crew and he could pull the cord at any moment if things got too hard and he get out, could get out. He wasn't really human. He wasn't really one of us. But the passage says he literally was, down to flesh and bone and blood, the same family, and he's not ashamed. And he literally has felt what you felt he was stranded on this island of humanity, and there was no getting out. And he proved it by what he suffered, and he proved it by what he, how he died. And that made him your champion. That made him your pioneer. That made him the perfect savior, someone you might actually trust because he's walked your streets. He's been from the other side of the streets in Nazareth, that town where nothing good comes from. And he understands and what I want you to know this morning, if you doubt that, realize this, that there is not a single part of your story that Jesus can't relate to. You have a God who gets it, who understands, who has literally been, been there down to the more mundane and the more difficult. Now, we all know he was a baby, right? What do babies do? you ever heard a baby that is breastfed and what happens inside their bodies and things like that after a breastfed baby goes to the bathroom in a diaper? Jesus did that. There were no formula stores back in the day, right? There was nowhere to get that carnation, you know, formula for the babies. He was au natural, right? And so he did that. Many of you might have had enjoyment on your family times with gassy emissions. Jesus did that as well. Right? That might have been Christmas entertainment for you. That was Jesus' family. Right? That's how it went. 
He probably spit up on Joseph. He probably had allergies at some point. He probably had a girl flirt with him in school, right? These are things that happened to Jesus. Andrew is loving this, man. I love it. And, you know, when we start to think about how human Jesus became, I don't know, you get a little uncomfortable making Jesus that human, making him that vulnerable, that real. But the book of Hebrews would say he did that for you. He did that with a very specific intent so you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's a man. He's a person. It's not your family and his. It's our family. And we're in this together. Okay, so the Monday, and I get it. Jesus is a man. He bird farted. That's great information this morning, Gavin. What else? <laughs> does he understand the deeper part of my story? I think he does. Had Jesus ever felt betrayed? I know I felt betrayed by one of my parents. It's the story I just told you. Why did my parent have to do that? Why did my parent have to blow up my family like that? There was a deep sense. That's where my anger came from. There was a deep sense of betrayal in that. Did Jesus deeply love somebody who betrayed him? You know his name, Judas. Walked with him for years, his good friend. And he betrayed him. Jesus knows what abuse feels like. There's nothing more physically, emotionally abusive than a crucifixion. Nothing more difficult to endure than the penalty of hell poured out on him and cursed. Did he feel the sting of abandonment? You heard possibly Cassie's story on Christmas Eve. What an incredible, hard story that she had, right? And it's amazing that she's sitting there telling it. Can Jesus relate to a story like that? Yeah, he knows the abandonment. Cassie talked about having a family that literally turned their back on him. John, the Gospel of John says that Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. In fact, at one point, his family thinks he's crazy for what he's doing and they're trying to stop him. He knows what it feels like to be in his own hometown and have no honor. Because they're like, who is this guy? We grew up with him. Why is he now all of a sudden saying all these things? He knows abuse. He knows abandonment. He knows betrayal. He knows the rougher parts of your story because he's been there. That's why he did it. So you would know that he knows that he knows. And that he understands what you've been through. He's not some far off distant God playing with a bunch of ants and a magnifying glass. He's in the story. He doesn't stand outside the pit and say, wow, I'm really sorry, it looks terrible down there. He jumps in the middle of it to try to help us out and understands what it feels like to be at the bottom of that pit. And that's why he's your champion. That's why he's perfect for you. That he has been perfectly tailor-made. That's why Christmas is a tailor-made perfect story for you to show you the lengths that your Savior will go to be your champion. And the author of Hebrews wants to say, this was part of the plan. And it talks about the Old Testament in verse 12, literally putting the words almost as if they're coming out of Jesus' mouth. Verse 12 says, he says, meaning almost as if Jesus is saying them, 
I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. That comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a really cool psalm. We remember the words probably most famously, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something Jesus says from the cross. But all throughout that psalm, it talks about the piercing of the hands and feet. It talks about them casting lots. And then later in the psalm, it says this verse, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And so this is Jesus after the cross going, I did it. I won. I can bring now my family with me. They were stuck and I can bring them with me now. I suffered. I died. And now I can free them. And I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. And then it quotes Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. And the children that God has given me, that's you, that's me. It's a new family. It's a new thing. The messed up family, he's in it now with you. And he's trying to bring us out. That's powerful stuff. That's something beyond just Christmas stories. When Jesus gets this kind of real to you, this kind of near to you, it tells you something. He's interested in relationship. You can't keep him away. Try and come up with excuses. No chance. Try and disqualify yourself. No chance. Try and disqualify him. No chance. He's in this. That's it. You're doing life together. Here I am. Deal with me. I love you. I'm a part of your family now. Hebrews goes on, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. He's not here to help the sanctified angels. They're all wonderful and beautiful. They already work for him. It's all set. He's here for Abraham's kids, people, you, me, flesh, blood, humanity. And what did he accomplish on our behalf? By becoming a person, he finally beat back the power and the fear of death. That was the one thing that had over us. One thing we can be sure of that all of us are going to experience and have to walk through is that we all die. That's it. That's the one thing that's going to be common to all of our experiences. We'll all be born and we're all going to die. And that fear hung over us. And the devil uses that fear in your life. Those stories that disqualify you, that keep Jesus away, those stories that keep Jesus far from you because maybe he's too qualified for you, that's Satan in your ear telling you that you can't relate, that he's too far from you, that, that the fear of death is too big. And it's a trap and it's a prison and we walked into that prison. But Jesus has jumped in the prison, kicked open the door and said, you can walk out now. You don't have to be captive to this anymore. I'm going to be with you in this life. And all you need to do is now walk out of this cage. The fear of these stories in our lives are going to keep us in prison and keep Jesus away. But Jesus wants to lead us out and he did it very specifically offered to be qualified to become a certain type of person to us. Verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. I think we've killed that idea. In order that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in service to God to make atonement for the sins of people. Jesus did an incredible thing. He experienced all the things he experienced, but he responded to it in a different way than we do. But he's in your life to show you that way, to show you how to break out of that. And he does it so mercifully and faithfully. And the only way he was becoming, become that merciful and that faithful was to jump into your world. And so Jesus isn't interested in putting you in your place. He's interested in sitting in your place. I know a lot of people read the Bible, especially like the Old Testament, and they have this notion, right, that if God were here right now, we couldn't even stand and, and he would just break out against sin and the flames would go out. Now, to be truth, to be true, there's some things in scripture that might lead you to believe that. But here's what I do know. When he did walk among us, none of that happened. That's not who he is. He didn't come to put us in our place talk down to us. He came to sit with us. He didn't come in a way to come at us. He came beside us. He desired to win us into relationship, not just to merely have a corrective lecture. And rather than to stand very far off, he wanted to stand with us. And he doesn't lash out at us. He walks with us and reaches out to us. So what's your view of God this morning? Is that the God that you know? Is that your identity with him? That if he were around you, he just couldn't stand it? Well, to quote the great theologian, Bette Midler. I can't say that with a straight face, but Bette Midler, yes, I just did a Bette Midler quote from 1990. A song she had. From a distance, you look like my friend, even though we are at war. From a distance, I just can't comprehend what all this fighting is for. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. That's total junk. That's absolutely false. Bette Midler, sorry, honey, wherever you are, you're wrong. <laughs> you can sing Wind Beneath the Wings. That's a much better song anyway. But if you have a copy of this one, burn it, okay? <laughs> it's bad theology. It sounded inspiring to me when I was a kid and I heard that song. I actually even went to church and heard a sermon on it once. And you know what message it sends? That God, to actually deal with us, has to be really far away. We only look beautiful when he's really far away. And that's literally the opposite of what the book of Hebrews says. So I'm going to side with the theologian of Hebrews rather than Bette Midler, personally. He gets up right in our business. And that's how he becomes merciful and faithful. He actually grows in compassion and love when he gets closer. Because he knows what you've been through. He knows how hard it's been. He knows how weird your family is, just like mine, right? He understands now what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. He understands what it's like to feel powerless and need help. He gets it. 
And so with Jesus, it is the opposite. The closer he gets to you, I hope the more you feel how merciful and faithful he is. And the whole goal is that maybe, just maybe you'd be like, okay, I can trust this guy now. Because he really does understand. And so this is where we want to take the Christmas story and we want to pivot. And we want to pivot and change what the message is about. Because it's very clear, and I hope I've made it painstakingly clear, how into your world Jesus is. And by that process of that compassionate move that he did to enter into your world, he becomes merciful and faithful to the point that you would trust him. And this isn't just a story for Christmas. This isn't just a story for back then. It's a story for today because what Jesus did for us, he wants you to do for others. And just like I want you to assume that you're the unlikely person that God came for, now I want you to assume you're the unlikely person that God sent in a very specific way into the world with other people where you are merciful and faithful in the same way that Jesus was. You get to be the high priest now. And that not, cannot be done at a distance, folks, even though maybe in this culture you want it to be. Maybe in this culture that is getting sticky. There's all kinds of ways to witness to the world, but I don't know about you, but do you tend to enjoy putting people in their place more than sitting in their place? I do. What about people that are different than you, different political persuasions, different opinions about various things? Do you like correcting people rather than creating relationships? Do you stand behind your social media walls getting ready to drop another truth grenade over the side? I have yet to have in my comments section, I believe in Jesus. Thank you so much for your harsh correction. <laughs> Never happens. And here's what I would bet. I think it's true. It's true for me. I bet that most of the people, whether they're very distant or very close to you, know where you stand on all matters related to COVID-19. I think they know how you feel about masks. I think they know how you feel about vaccinations. What I'm wondering whether they know or not about, whether they know that you know Jesus and whether they know how to have a right relationship with him. Because you may be the only one who might be able to tell them. See, they know where you stand. But have you sat with them? Have you sat in their place? Have you sat in their story with them? Because, man, I don't know about you, but this world is getting louder, isn't it? It is an outrage world right now. And it has become a yelling match. But we don't have to play that game, do we? We want to be a merciful and faithful witness to Christ and a merciful and faithful witness to the people. And that doesn't come with yelling. That doesn't come with being louder. I was reading recently this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 26, and it was deeply convicting to me, and I want to share it with you. It says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing they produce quarrels. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, 
gently correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That sounds really eerily familiar to our Hebrews passage. A bunch of people captive by the devil, ensnared and trapped. How did Jesus come to us? He entered our world. He became one of us so that we got the sense from him that he was merciful and faithful to us. And he entered deeply into our world to know us and love us and show us compassion so we would trust him and have relationship with him. How do you come at people? I think for so many of us, quarrelsome is where we have to stop in the verse. In this culture of outrage. Man, there's so many outrageous claims. It feels like we have to be as outrageous back. But I don't win anybody to Jesus doing it that way. In fact, the verse that talks about kind to all, patient when wrong, gentleness, that sounds a lot like Hebrews, the way Jesus did it. Not ready to correct, but ready to connect and to sit with us. And I don't know about you, maybe it's, I'm from upstate New York. I'm not sure if it's the New Yorker in me. I've been trying to get Jesus to kill it for a long time. But my family likes to argue. I don't know what happened yesterday. I hope it was all pleasant. But I know sometimes when families get together, it gets colorful, doesn't it? What do those arguments look like with the people around you in your life? Not just your family, but the people who are, are near you. Are you quarrelsome? I know so often for me, I've done it wrong most of the time, and I've done it right a couple of times. I think back to the days when I was at Syracuse University with my college roommates. None of them were Christian. I was uncomfortable hanging around Christians at the time, so I had all non-Christian roommates, and they were non-Christian, and they lived like it at Syracuse University, right? So they would go on Friday nights. Well, usually the weekend started on Thursday nights. It's funny how in college the weekend backs up, right? So Thursday night, then Friday night, then Saturday, and then Sunday is recovery time, right? But so it was always Thursday night that they go out, and then they'd come back home, and they would get in a theological debate with me every Thursday with a little, you know, something inside them. And every time the argument came back to the same place, they would look at my one roommate who was Jewish and you're like, why do you want to send this nice, nice guy to hell? What's wrong with you? I was like, well, I like that guy. And they're like, no, you're sending him to hell. That's what your faith says. And we would get in this big argument and I would try to prove my points and, and I would I'd dog them and they'd dog me back and I would get upset and they would get upset. And you know how many of them came to Jesus? through that process, that quarrelsome scene, zero. That wasn't merciful. That wasn't faithful. It was just quarrelsome. We were just arguing. I wasn't really entering their world. I was trying to prove a point, and so were they. And it didn't work. God did not use it. Fast forward many years later, um, other quarrelsome occasions in my life. I remember sitting on a plane headed to uh, Germany. And it's a long flight, 10 hours. 
And I don't know about you, but anytime I'm flying on a plane, I'm like, kind of like, don't talk to me. Like, I just need to be in my own little world. And everybody gets on their phone really fast so they don't have to talk to anybody. And, you know, like, you sit down next to somebody, you're wondering if you're going to talk, and they quick pull out a book. Like, that basically is the signal. Keep your mouth shut. I want to have my flight to myself, right? We know the signals. The problem was I was on this flight, and I had been hearing all of these preachers that had an airplane story. They're, like, talking to people on airplanes. I was like, man, I'm so antisocial. Like, maybe someone would come to Jesus if I paid attention on an airplane. So I was like, God, do you want me to have an airplane story? But for nine of ten hours, I thought, no, he didn't. <laughs> and I was just trying to sleep and eat my food. But around the last hour, I had this feeling that passages like Hebrews 2 was in my mind. It talked about Jesus entering our world. And I thought, maybe it's time to have an airplane story. I looked over, this lady was sitting next to me, and uh, she was German. She was flying back. To, we were going through Frankfurt, and she was flying back to Frankfurt, Germany. And we only had about an hour to go, and I thought, well, I'm going to enter her world for a minute and just ask her about her. I wasn't quarrelsome. I wasn't interested in picking a fight. I wasn't even interested in some kind of Christian sales technique. I just wanted to get to know her. And so I just asked her, hey, a little bit about herself. Why are you on this flight? What's been going on? And just the sheer idea of entering her world and asking her questions. She told me a lot about herself in about 45 minutes. I found out that she was in the middle of a divorce. And that her husband was American. And that they had one child. And she was just there visiting him. And the husband didn't care for her much. And she was brokenhearted because she was going back to Germany and she had to leave her child in the United States. She told me all of that in 45 minutes just by asking some questions. And as I listened to her and I heard her story and I just sort of entered her world and empathized with her story and related to it and told her about my own broken home and past and family and all of that, she turned to me and then said, well, what are you doing here? You're not German. I was like, you picked up on the accent. I said, well, we're on a mission trip. Where are you going? Albania. Who's heard of Albania? Not many, but that's where we're going. It's close to Italy. They don't know Jesus there. We're a bunch of folks, and we're going there, and we're going to teach them English, and we're going to share Christ with them. Really? And we had a little conversation about that. Last 15 minutes of the flight, we landed. We kind of stopped talking at that point. But as she got up to leave, there were tears streaming down her face. And all she said was, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. If I could put in the words of this passage, thank you for entering my world. Thank you for understanding for a minute what we were through. And I was glad that I had talked about Jesus. Because hopefully maybe she'll make that connection. That the love she received from me in that moment had something to do with Jesus. I don't know if she ever came to faith, but I feel like a seed was planted. And I feel like that was way more effective than anything I ever could have done with a quarrelsome spirit. Lobbing truth grenades at people. Winning arguments, but losing people. Winning elections, but losing people. That's what we do. That's what we want to do as a church, becoming merciful 
and faithful to the people around us after the pattern of Jesus. This is why if you join a life group, and I hope all of you eventually get in a life group, one of the things you'll do in life group, one of the first things we hope you'll do in a life group is to do life maps. And you know, the life maps is where you kind of just tell all the things in your story. And I have yet to find out that when people start telling their story, that people are like, wow, I hate that person even more now. In fact, I cannot even be in a group with that person if that's in their story. That has literally never happened. In fact, there's more grace. They're like, wow, I thought they were annoying, but now I have the context for why they were so annoying. (laughs) (laughs) But you start to hear people's stories. And then you start leaning in. And there's compassion there. And there's love there. And that's what it takes. That's what Jesus wants us to be, merciful and faithful in that way. And some of you are doing that. I know one guy is in a men's group with me, and, and his neighbor across the street, they've identified around hunting, they, they've connected around, you know, uh, cars and things like that, and man, that guy I don't think has a Christian friend in the world, and when he was sick, you know who he called? His Christian friend to come take him to the hospital. You know what that is? That's family. That's family, and they're not even in the same family, but that's Incarnation. That's entering someone's world. And some of you are doing that. You're helpful to your neighbors. But how far is that going to go? What lines will you cross? What messy worlds will you enter? LGBTQ? Democrats? Republican? Cowboy fans? I sent me lines right there, right? But this is what merciful and faithful people do. They cross enemy lines and they jump into people's jacked up stories and they do it in closeness. They don't stay at a distance because when you're close, you can create bridges. Love creates bridges. And those bridges can bear the weight of truth now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, a verse from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That word merciful is the exact same word that describes Jesus. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Blessed are you when you're merciful. Just like that. It's the same word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You may be the only Jesus they ever encounter, that they might ever know in their lives. And maybe they've encountered other Christians who haven't represented Jesus, and you get a chance to change that impression from judgmental and distant to merciful and faithful by the way you enter their world and the way that you treat them. This is our church, to be love where there is no love, to be peace where there is no peace, to be merciful, to be faithful, to be gentle, to be kind, to go into the world, to be hope where there is no hope. And so as we close, I want to give you just three things from the message to kind of just land on, if you could. The first is what we started off talking about. 
this morning, if you can, assume. You're not a teen mom. You're not an old infertile couple. Might be in the Christmas story, but assume the appearing of Jesus as a baby was for you. That you are the unlikely person that God came for. That he actually wanted to know you. Not someone like you. Not someone else. Not someone with a cleaner story than you. Just you. He wanted to know you in your family. In all its complexity. All its messed upness. And he dove in head first. So assume that you're the unlikely person God wanted to appear to. Because you are. If you're human, you qualify. But secondly, there isn't a part of your story that Jesus can't relate to. So whatever you're doing this morning to disqualify yourself or overqualify Jesus, A, let him do what he wants to do in your life, which he wanted to take you on. So let him. And whatever it is you're doing to push him away, say, not me, God. It's too messed up here. You can't. Like we sung at the very beginning of the service, let him in. Open up those windows. There's some stale air in there. And you need Jesus to come in fully. And I guarantee you there's nothing you've been through that he doesn't understand. That he doesn't feel compassion for you and want to lift you out of. There's not a single thing, nothing whatsoever. Lastly, assume. The last assumption, the most important assumption as we head out away from Christmas is to assume that he's sending you. Sending you in a particular way. You are the unlikely person God is sending to be merciful and faithful in this world. Not contentious. Not quarrelsome. Not argumentative. But kind and merciful and faithful as you do the hard work of getting into people's messy worlds. It's so confusing. It's so weird. It's so different. Jesus was willing to do that with each of us. And he's now sending you to do that with all of the folks 